Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. As uh, Elder Skibnes was mentioning, it was a tough week for a lot of people this week. Lots of fear, lots of turmoil, lots of, of uh, swaying back and forth. Lord, we thank you that we have an anchor. We thank you that even as this, the waves of the storms of this life threaten to toss us to and fro, we may rock back and forth, but we're not going anywhere because we have you as our anchor. You are dug deep into the rock, and we cling to you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not just an old, dusty book, but that it is life. It is power. It changes hearts. It changes minds. It changes lives. So, Lord, I pray that your word would go forth this morning and that seeds would be buried deep within us and grow real fruit in our lives. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Nothing in this world lasts forever, right? And this is seen in the most dramatic way in the world of technology. Just ask a 10-year-old what a cassette tape is. See what they come up with. Ask them what a VHS tape is and see what they come up with. Ask them what a compact disc is now and see what they come up with. Even DVDs and even Blu-rays are quickly becoming an outdated mode of video with online streaming services like Google Play, Amazon Prime Video, and Disney Plus rendering them pointless. Cable TV is even losing ground to cord-cutting services like Hulu and YouTube TV. Everything is becoming as wireless and cloud-based as humanly possible. But there's one thing, and really the only thing, that will never change, never wane, never fail, and the only thing we can take with us into eternity. I'm sure you've already gathered from looking at the screen here, from looking at the title, what that is. But before we get to this, I want to set up a little foundation for what Paul talks about in our passage this morning. We've been spending a good deal of time delving into the subject of spiritual gifts over the past couple of months. What they are, how they're given, what their purpose is, and how they relate to the church. When a person repents of their sin and gives their lives to Jesus, the Bible tells us the Holy Spirit immediately comes and indwells or makes a home within them. Not only do we become children of God and we have God and all that He is, we also get something else. We looked at 1 Corinthians, how God the Father is the one with the perfect plan or will. Perfect plan or will. He's the one who changes hearts to come into accordance with that plan. God the Son then gives each of us, each individual, an, a mission of what he wants us to do for God's kingdom and that plan. But Jesus doesn't just give us our individual missions and then says, all right, have fun with that. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. The Holy Spirit, literally making a home within us, then gives us what are called spiritual gifts in order to fulfill that mission. We've, we're, we're never expected to do the work that God gives to us on our own strength and power. That's impossible. We were always meant to have to rely on God and use His power to do what He wants us to do. 
Paul reveals some of these spiritual gifts in chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically in verses 8 through 10. Word of wisdom, or being able to understand scriptural truths that relate to everyday life. Word of knowledge, or being able to sensitively, appropriately, and effectively communicate those truths to others. The gift of great faith, or having this, in, this powerful inward sense that what you pray for will come to pass. The gift of healing, or seeing that who you pray for, for physical, emotional, mental, or psychological healing, more often than not, are experiencing that healing from God. The gift of working miracles, or again, seeing that who you pray for deliverance for, or provision for, or protection for, are experiencing that miraculous division, provision, or protection. The gift of prophecy, or receiving a leading, uh, or a sense, or some kind of revelation from God, and, and communicating that to other humans. The gift of being able to, de to determine what seeming miracles are godly in source or demonic in source. The gift of tongues or being able to speak in earthly language previously unknown to the speaker, but speaking about God in a different earthly language in order to show the universal kingdom of God, regardless of language. And the gift of hearing those unknown earthly languages and somehow being able to interpret them into the dominant language of that local congregation. These are all found in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10. We've talked about how your spiritual gift may or may not be on this list, but that does not mean the Holy Spirit hasn't given you a spiritual gift. If you remember, I said, if you don't know what your Jesus-given mission is, nor the spiritual gifts the Holy Spirit has given to you in order to fulfill that mission with God's help, Figure it out. Don't just leave it that way. Figure it out. We can't stay in the limbo state of either not knowing or not caring enough to figure out what our mission and gifts are. Why? Because God gives each of us a mission and gifts to strengthen and grow our church. That's why. We all must figure out what that is. That's the purpose of spiritual gifts. The purpose of spiritual gifts is never for our own advancement or accomplishments. The purpose of spiritual gifts, as we've seen in God's Word, is to build up, to strengthen, to encourage, to heal, and grow the local church we're a part of, and therefore the universal church made up of all believers in Jesus. Paul seamlessly flows into this topic by boldly and declare, clearly declaring that each and every single person in the church has a vital part, purpose, and job in that church. And that's not different for any single one of you sitting here today or anybody watching this later on on our website. Every single person has a Jesus-given mission and Holy Spirit-given gifts. The Corinthians had many problems. We know that, right? As we've been working our way through this letter, the Corinthian church had many problems. We've seen Paul address those problems for the very beginning of this letter. In fact, that was the main reason why he felt compelled to write this letter to the Corinthian church in the first place. There were a lot of things that needed to be straightened out in that congregation. 
One of those things was that the Corinthians were placing the gift of tongues above every other gift and holding those who had that gift of tongues in high esteem and only really praying for the gift of tongues. That's all they were focused on. They were, had a one-track mind. Gift of tongues, gift of tongues, gift of tongues. That's the best gift there is, and I'm going to do everything I can to get it. Paul says, that's only one gift. Why are you only focused on that? That's only one part. That's only one gift with only one purpose. There are so many more gifts. And he lists them here in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. He also lists different ones elsewhere in other letters that he wrote to other churches. There are so many more gifts, and they are all vitally necessary to the body. But more than that, as Paul gets into chapter 13, which we've been covering over the past few weeks, there is a force even more powerful than the most powerful spiritual gifts. And that's the power of love. Christ-like love is what will be the most powerful force God will use in changing someone's heart. Why? Because when we act and respond in Jesus' love, and in a way that he would act and respond, who are people catching a glimpse of? Jesus himself. Seeing that kind of selfless love is what will finally get through to the hardest of hearts. Jesus' love. Not only is love the most powerful force to change hearts and the world, but love will be the only thing that will survive into eternity. You've heard the phrase, you can't take anything with you into heaven. Y yes, you can. You can take one thing with you into heaven, and that's love. You can only take one thing. Only one thing will survive into eternity. That's why it's so important to make the pursuit of that and God growing that in every area of our hearts and lives, numero uno. That's what Paul transitions into our passage this morning. So if you brought your Bible with you, Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you didn't, there should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. If you're having trouble finding it, just look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I want all of us to see this. The, the point that we come to first here is the context. Paul, in fact, starts out this concluding section of chapter 13 with exactly this. Verse 8, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 Love never fails. Three-word sentence there. Love never fails. According to one biblical scholar, within this context, what Paul is primarily getting at here is that love will never cease. Love will never end. Love will never disappear. We'll see why once we see why everything else will disappear at some point in the future. Because the context is that love will never disappear, end or cease, that context then dictates that what follows is what will disappear, end or cease at some point. The, uh, the second part of verse 8. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. When we covered each of these gifts, 
listed in chapter 12, you remember that I mentioned I would be heavily relying on the interpretations of theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem for his clear, understandable, and most importantly, thoroughly biblical understanding, and I'm revisiting that today for the rest of chapter 13. What will disappear, end, or cease? According to verse 8, the spiritual gifts of prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, right? That's what we read there. Like Paul's list in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10, he includes both seemingly miraculous gifts and non-miraculous gifts here, prophecy and tongues being the so-called miraculous and knowledge being the so-called non-miraculous. Paul's point is that while love will exist for all of eternity, all of the spiritual gifts, even the miraculous ones, and in the Corinthians case, even the most desirable ones to the non-miraculous ones, will one day cease to exist. Why? Well, we find that out in verse 9, the very following verse. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. What, what time is he talking about? Right there. Now. Now we know in part and we prophesy in part. Every single one of the spiritual gifts, from an understanding of Scripture to working unexplainable miracles and acts of physical healing, all have roots in the coming full and complete kingdom of God. That's what every single one of them and more has roots in, in the coming full and complete kingdom of God. Every single one of them is a foretaste and a glimpse into the future of what's to come. Here's what I mean. The gift of healing is a partial foretaste and glimpse at the point of time in the future when Jesus comes back for us. And as Paul will describe elsewhere in the twinkling of an eye, we will all be changed and all be given perfect bodies, free from sickness, disease, injury, or decay. I think we can all agree and say, Lord Jesus, can we just have that now? We will get that someday. Jesus will return for us, and in a twinkling of an eye, we will be given glorified bodies. These bodies will never die, will never decay, and they will be fit for entering the Messianic kingdom. The gifts of great faith and of miracles are partial foretastes and glimpses at the point of time in the future when God himself will dwell among his people and we will live on the new earth, a perfect world where faith and miracles to change the current curse of sin on this current world will no longer be needed. It will be a new and perfect world. The gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues are partial foretastes and glimpses at the point of time in the future where people from every tribe and nation and ethnicity and race and tongue or language will all be gathered before the throne of the Father and of the Lamb, pouring out our worship as one with no division for any reason for all of eternity. Likewise, we see in verse 9 the gifts of knowledge or understanding Scripture and God and prophecy are only partial foretastes and glimpses at the point of time in the future when we are finally and fully united with Jesus. 
Knowledge, of course, is having an as accurate of an understanding of who God is and what he's doing. Most of this comes from an accurate understanding of what he's revealed about himself in his word. Prophecy is communication between God and humankind. You'll remember when we covered this gift more specifically, that the New Testament gift of prophecy that is given to believers in Jesus is very different from Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophets. In the Old Testament, prophecy was a direct message from God, and it's why most of the Old Testament prophets preface their messages with, thus says the Lord, right? They had, this, they had the same authority as being the spokesperson of God. However, in the New Testament, Paul gives the instruction that any prophecy given in the church by a person who has the gift of prophecy must be weighed as to its accuracy. He, tell, he gives that instruction in the next chapter. So the New Testament gift of prophecy we can determine is a perfect revelation from God in the mode of a leading or an inner sense or a dream or a vision which, is in a, which an imperfect person then interprets and imperfectly relays to other humans. You can have an inner sense or a leading and that's from the Holy Spirit, that's from God, it's a direct revelation from God, but you may misinterpret it. You may miss. Uh, relay it to people. You may uh, get it a little, a little bit different, a little bit off. That interpretation and communication must be weighed then by the rest of the congregation as to its accuracy and therefore any subsequent obedience. Therefore, both the gifts of knowledge and of prophecy are imperfect. We see that in verse 9. They're imperfect. They're partial. They're only partial foretastes of the future full and complete kingdom of God. When God himself dwells among us on the new earth, he will no longer need to communicate with us the way that he does now. He will, we, he will literally live among us. We will literally live with him. He will be the light. There will be no night. His presence will be the light. He will dwell among us. We will have as perfect of an understanding of him and his will as he wants us to. Paul says in verse 9 that right now on this earth, in this life, we must operate and function with the spiritual gifts, even as they are only partial fulfillments of God's kingdom. Why? Because we're imperfect humans living in an imperfect world. However, there will be a time when all of this will be changed. There will be a time when all of this will be changed. So we talked about the context, what Paul is directly speaking into here. And now we're talking about the current age, what's going on right now. That time in the future is described by Paul in verse 10. But when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, a lot of preachers, theologians, and churches disagree and differ on what the term the perfect means. I'm not going to get into bashing anybody. That is not why I'm here. I'm not going to bash anybody, uh, anybody else's interpretation. Some interpret the perfect to mean a time that is already past. 
a time in church history when the church matured enough to no longer need some of these gifts, at least the more miraculous ones like tongues, prophecy, and miracles. Those who hold that view are known as cessationists. Have you heard that term before? Okay, okay, good. You learned a new word today. You can write that on your word for the day list for today. Cessationists, it comes from the term that, they, that some of these gifts have ceased to exist. Though those who hold this view are known as cessationists. Again, I'm not here to bash any of those who hold to that view, but I believe there's another view that seems to fit what Paul describes next much better. Paul describes in verses 11 through 12 what the perfect is and when the perfect will come, which explains fully what he's getting at in verses 8 through 10. In verse 11 we read, When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. A lot of critics of the Bible, ironically, will rip this verse out of context. Who here has heard this verse just completely ripped out of context? To mean that at one point in human history, we as humans needed the Bible because we were unenlightened and needed a list of do's and don'ts. But now we've all evolved and developed enough into modernity that we as humans don't need the Bible anymore and it's antiquated views on life. Anybody hear that view before? With this verse to back up that view? That is not what Paul is getting at here at all. As we see within its immediate context, that's not anywhere near what Paul is saying here. He's primarily referring to the use of all spiritual gifts in this current age that we still live in. In Paul's day and still now, we live in a cursed world with a limited human understanding of that world and a limited human understanding of the God who created it. Paul illustrates this current way of understanding, or rather, lack of understanding of God in the world by using the illustration of thinking, reasoning, and acting like a child. When we're children, we understand God and the world around us in a certain way. Most of that understanding revolves around me, myself, and I, right? Most of a child's understanding of life is that it all revolves around them. That the meaning of life is about them and their needs and their happiness. It's a very self-centered and selfish way of looking at everything. I'm not bashing kids. I'm just saying if we think about it, stop and think about it, what a child's focus usually is, especially a small child. It's the biggest sign of immaturity in our development as human beings. Try explaining the complexities of the universe to a little kid who wants a snack and needs to take a nap. Or, better yet, try explaining the trinity of the Godhead to a toddler who holds the irrefutable opinion that the red cup is infinitely better than the blue cup and will stop at nothing until the red cup is within their grasp. Tell me I'm wrong when I ask, isn't that how we still naturally understand things? The topics and items 
may be considered more grown up these days, but we still very much behave the same way. The biggest battle we face every single day is when we wake up, and it's the battle between self-centeredness and what we want in life versus being transformed more and more daily into who Jesus is. Tell me I'm wrong. Isn't that the biggest battle we face every day when we wake up between self-centeredness and Jesus? I already mentioned this somewhat, but this is why. First part of verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The word used here for dimly in the New American Standard Bible, puzzling reflections in the New Living Translation, or darkly in the King James Version, is used only one time in the entire New Testament, and it's used right here, what we just read. But now we see dimly. We see in a mirror dimly. It's only used once by the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, in Judges 14.13. And this gives us a clue as to how we should understand it. But if you can't solve it, then you must give me 30 fine linen robes and 30 sets of festive clothes. You don't need to know what's going on here. All I want you to see is a last word. All right, they agreed. Let's hear your riddle. Same word used here, repeated here in the New Testament. That, along with other ancient another ancient Greek writer's use of the word gives us this understanding that this word for dimly, puzzling reflections or darkly, depending on your translation, is that it's best understood as obscure, fuzzy, like if I took my glasses off right now, you'd just be a bunch of blobs, <laughs> an enigma, a puzzle, or a riddle. All of these things. And that indeed, correct me if I'm wrong, that indeed is our understanding of the mysteries of who God really is at this point, isn't it? We only know what he's revealed to us about himself, his kingdom, and his plan, and that it's, it's really only an, an obscure, a fuzzy, a puzzling understanding at best, Right? That's the curse on humanity because of our original sin. Having a very limited understanding and scope of who God is and what in the world he's doing. What in the world he's doing in the world and what in the world he's doing in our individual lives. So if something heartbreaking or traumatic has happened to you in your past and you have no clue why a good and loving God would allow that into your life, rest assured, you're in good company. You're not the only person who's wondered that. You're in good company. None of us fully understands why God does certain things sometimes. It's fuzzy. It's obscure. None of us fully understands what God is doing in our lives, and that's okay. Because presently, none of us has the capability to understand the complexities of the whys of God's plan. So if you don't know, you don't get it, that's okay. We're not meant to right now. 
Everything is meant to be fuzzy and obscure at this point. But God in his love and mercy has chosen to reveal certain aspects of who he is and what he's doing and what we have to look forward to if we trust in Jesus for our salvation from our sin. That much we sort of just understand the basics of. That's where trust comes in. That's where trust comes in. We trust our infinitely intelligent and wise God that what he's doing is best for us and is best for our spiritual growth, no matter how painful it may be. We trust our infinitely intelligent and wise God that he has his own reasons for why he does certain things in this current age. And we may never know what those are, and that's okay. So we have the context of what Paul was writing into. We have this current age, our limited human understanding. Everything is fuzzy and obscure and out of focus. Thirdly, we have the consummation. This current age will not be the way it always will be. The consummation. The current way things are now will not always be the way it is for us. There will be a day when Jesus comes back for us. There will be a day when Jesus comes back for us and consummates his kingdom, sets it up. Then the way things are right now will no longer be. Second part of verse 12. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I also have been fully known. What in the world is Paul getting at there? According to one biblical scholar, the Corinthians would have appreciated this illustration. Like if I referenced the uh, Peaberg Easton football game or something around here. The Corinthians would have appreciated this illustration for the city of Corinth was famous for its crafting of bronze mirrors. But especially looking at a bronze mirror, even polished, would that reflection be all that great compared to actually looking at someone face to face? No. There'd be imperfections in the bronze. Things would be all wavy. It wouldn't be perfect. In the same way, right now, we only see and process and understand our lives, what happens in them, in the world around us, as if we're looking into a funhouse mirror. Imagine if you could not see your entire life and you walked into a funhouse one day and for whatever reason you could all of a sudden see, but all you could see was your reflection in that funhouse mirror. First of all, you'd probably be like, is that really what I look like? <laughs> We'd have to look at the distorted reflection and try to make out what was real and what wasn't. What's overly exaggerated and what's real. Right now, that's what we have to do with our understanding of God and the world. That's our only option. We try to get as best of an understanding of God as we can through our reading of what he reveals about himself in his word and the revealing of his Holy Spirit and through the transformation of us by the Holy Spirit. But that's the best we have right now. But there will be a day when we will see Jesus face to face. That's what Paul says in verse 12. But then there will be a day 
face to face. Then there will be a day where we will see Jesus face to face. And what a glorious day that will be. Amen. It will be glorious because we will finally meet our Savior and we can thank Him face to face for everything He's done for us. It will be glorious because if we're seeing Him face to face, what does that mean? It means we no longer live in the world as we knew it. And it will be glorious because everything will suddenly and finally be brought into focus. We will have transformed and glorified bodies and along with that, transformed and glorified minds. When we see Jesus face to face, everything that once did not make any sense suddenly will make all the sense in the world. In addition, we just have a, a limited understanding of God and His Word because it's all we have from what he's chosen to reveal to us and enlighten us through his Holy Spirit to understand. But there will be a day when we will know God and understand God just as he knows and understands us right now. That's what Paul is getting at in the second part of verse 12. There will be a day where we will know and understand God just as he knows and understands us right now. And how much is that? Perfectly, right? Is there anything that God does not know about you? No. The Bible tells us that even before we were even conceived, God was thinking about us. Before we were all even conceived, he already had all the days of our lives, along with what would happen in those days, written in his book. That's how much he knows about you. The Bible tells us that God knows us completely and perfectly, through and through, from the numbers of hair on our head to, the, to, to things about us we haven't even realized about ourselves yet. But he knows. Think about possessing that same kind of knowledge about God and who God is. Let that sink in for a minute. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? That we would know and understand God the same way he knows and understands us right now. Yet that's what we have to look forward to. That's what we have to look forward to. Now here's the big question. Do we have all the answers right now to what God is doing in our lives right now? Yet. No. Do we possess the same kind of knowledge of God that he currently possesses about us? No. So within just this immediate context, taking what Paul is saying here at face value, what Paul refers to as the perfect is when we do have this understanding and knowledge. Everybody with me so far? Okay. When will that happen? When Jesus returns for us and when he consummates his kingdom here on the earth. 
Likewise, when Paul writes something similar to the Ephesians, he says this will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Let me ask you, if we're really honest, has any of us, even the church as a whole, even the church in the United States, anywhere, matured to the full and complete standard of Christ? No, not anywhere close. And in fact, we may be further away from the full and complete standard of Christ than we were thousands of years ago. When will and when can that only happen? Again, when Jesus returns for us and glorifies us. That's the perfect. That's when the perfect will come. And that's when all the spiritual gifts will cease. So once we see Jesus face to face, what will we not need anymore? Any of these spiritual gifts that we have. We won't need the gifts of knowledge or wisdom because all of us will possess transformed knowledge and wisdom. We won't need the gift of healing because all of our bodies will be glorified. We won't need faith because all of us will be with Jesus. We won't need miracles because we'll be, all of us will be living in Jesus' kingdom of prosperity, abundance, and peace. And we won't need the gift of tongues because we'll all be worshiping God together as one and Jesus' kingdom will be a manifestation of the universal aspect of it. Like I've mentioned before, even... Though all of the spiritual gifts will exist until that point in the future, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom on earth, this passage does not speak to the frequency of how the Holy Spirit will give out those gifts. The Holy Spirit will give out which spiritual gifts will be the most beneficial to each church and according to that church's location and how much of a gospel presence is in that location. For instance, the miraculous gifts of tongues, prophecy, and miracles are most beneficial and therefore are more, more frequent as signs of the power of the gospel message of Jesus' death and resurrection in places where the, gospel, the presence of the gospel has not yet been firmly established. The consummation of the messianic kingdom is still future. It has not happened yet. So even though this is what we have to look forward to as temporary residents of this current world and age, what are we to cling to now? You want to say, that's all well and good for the future, but what does that mean to me now? What do I have to cling to now? What has God given to us in the meantime as we wait? Paul gives that answer in the last verse of chapter 13. But now, faith, hope, love, Abide these three. Cling to these three. But the greatest of these is love. These are the blessings. Faith, hope, and love. These are the blessings God has given to us as we live out the rest of this painful and difficult and confusing life and do the work he's given us to do. Faith, hope, and love. These are gifts that he's given to us. He's given us faith not only for our salvation, but to trust Him, to trust His goodness, and to trust His love. He's given us hope 
to know that we will see Jesus face to face one day. And we will be with him for the rest of eternity. But again, we won't need faith. We won't need hope once we've been given that experience. When we meet Jesus face to face, either in death or in the air, we will be with him for all of eternity. We won't need faith because that will be made sight in that moment. And we won't need hope because all that we have hoped for with confidence will finally be fulfilled. Both faith and hope will also cease to exist at some point. That's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. Even those, faith and hope, will cease to exist at some point. But love will continue to always exist for all of eternity. Why? Because that's who God is. The Bible tells us God is love. So if God is love, love will exist into eternity. The Apostle John tells us that God is love. Since God is the very definition of love and he will always exist, love will always exist. God's love for us and our love for him will never wane even when we're 100,000 years into eternity. You really thought about that? God's love will still never wane. We will always get to revel in God's love for us as we spend eternity pouring our love out to him. That's why the greatest of everything, even hope and faith, will always be love. That's why God tells us to seek to have his love poured out into every area of our lives, to be shared with everyone else we meet. That's why God tells us to seek to have his love grown in us as one of the fruits of the Spirit. First one on the list. It's because the love we're seeking and he's giving right now is an investment. That's why. It's an investment. We talked earlier, spent a few minutes, we touched on the, the falling of Wall Street this past week. A lot of people lost a lot of investments. Love will never lose its value. It will only gain its value. That is what we have to be investing in right now because, again, that's the only thing we'll be able to take with us into eternity. What are we taking? How much of this investment are we taking with us into eternity? Love is the only thing we'll be able to take with us. So let us seek God's love to change every part of who we are now as an investment knowing that we will know him as he intimately knows us now. Let us invest that love into the lives of those around us, compounding that investment by bringing as many people as we can with us into eternity. Remember, it's an investment. How many people are we bringing with us into eternity? By that investment of love, we're investing into them. And let us wait with faith, hope, and love for that kingdom in which perfect love reigns supreme as its embodiment, God, reigns supreme and dwells with us on the new earth. Can't wait for that day. You too?
Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this powerful message. We thank you that it clearly tells us when things won't be fuzzy and out of focus anymore. Lord, it tells us that even though things are maybe confusing, we may not have the answers to the whys of different things that happen to us in this life. We know that's not always the way it's going to be. There will be a day when you will call us up to yourself. You will transform us and we will be with you forever. We will see you face to face, and we will know you fully just as you fully know us. We look forward to that day with excitement, with faith, hope, and love. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.